Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey everyone, this is Eric. And this month we want to point you to Alison Gerlach's The Unapologetic Capitalist, which is another great podcast on Agora's podcast network. And The Unapologetic Capitalist isn't about telling you how great the free market is, but it is about checking your politics at the door and adding substantial value for your business. So if you're a business leader, business owner, or you're working to help make any business better, Allison has a lot of great advice and also has a lot of really awesome people that she interviews that have been successful in the past, have written some awesome books, and have given a lot of advice as consultants to big business leaders. So go check her out. I think she has a lot to offer and enjoy. Welcome back, everyone. This is another pretty quick episode that you're going to be getting from us. You might be wondering... Oh, Eric and Xander are doing a lot lately. Well, there's been a lot in the news that we're excited about and want to share with you. So we might get inspired now and in the future to do a bunch of these episodes at once and just throw them at you. And hopefully as the Wheel of Fortune turns and we return some months to just two episodes a month, you won't be grumpy with us. You'll just be grateful for what you got. Today we are talking about the South China Sea once again, which has now come to dominate uh, a lot of our content, at least as a portion. And, of course, in the last two episodes, we talked about why it was important and what's the historical context and the recent background, why you should care, what are the implications for the future. And one of the things we didn't talk about was the fact that the Philippines, in 2013, took China to court under UN Clause. And for UN Clause. 2013 is a pretty recent case. It's a big bureaucratic UN system. It takes a while for stuff to get sorted out, etc. And just recently, that ruling has come in, and it's going to potentially shape the future big time. And we're going to talk about that today. Yeah, so just as a quick review, UN CLOS is an acronym that stands for the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. So it's a very bureaucratized way of saying international maritime law that a lot of different nations have agreed to in one form or another. And China has signed up for this. I like that you use the word sign up rather than agree. That sounds relevant. It does, because as we'll talk about a little later in this show, even though China has signed up, there are questions about the relevance and effectiveness of UN clause now that this 
decision has been made by the court. And this would be the first time that the relevance and effectiveness of the United Nations has ever been called into question. Right. No one ever doubts the effectiveness of multilateral institutions. Definitely. So quick review. China basically claims territorial rights to the entire South China Sea, which is the part of of the ocean that kind of sits between Southeast Asia and the Philippines and Indonesia. And sort of-ish near China. Sort of-ish near China. I mean, it certainly sits off one coast of China, but they're saying, yeah, actually that entire area is ours, even though it, I mean, in my opinion, you look at a map, it pretty obviously conflicts with territorial claims of a lot of other countries, just commonsensically. So China has what they call this nine-dash line that basically goes around the entire sea and it cuts through what a lot of other countries say are their territorial rights too. So that means that China's claims go right up to the edge of these other countries' sea borders. And there are both defense and resource considerations playing into this issue. So you can imagine how it becomes pretty contentious pretty quickly. Yeah, and for those who are just listening to this episode without the other two, yes, go listen to them. But the resources at stake are fish, which is kind of a big deal, especially as we think about declining fish populations. But more importantly, hydrocarbons. Also, the first time hydrocarbons have been a source of military international conflict in the history of man. Oil never causes conflict or war, right? It's I, true. I, I think that was an axiom that some political scientist said once. It's definitely yes. true. So luckily, after this ruling from UN clause came out that China's claim to the nine-dash line is totally BS, and we'll talk about what the details were, China said, okay, sorry, and they pulled it back. Is that right, Xander? Right. China said, cool, guys, whatever you say, we have no problem. Oh, wait, actually... Hold on, I'm looking in the notes. That's not what they said. Right. China is kind of peeved about this answer, to put mildly, right? So their whole case, well, okay, China didn't actually take part in this case. The Philippines brought their case to what's called the Permanent Court of Arbitration, which is a very bureaucratic-sounding title for this international tribunal that's supposed to pass judgment, and govern UN clause rules and regulations. And China basically said, hey, you know what? We think this is actually an issue of sovereignty. This is not an issue of exclusive economic zones or territorial claims. It's an issue of sovereignty. Therefore, you don't have a right to even pass judgment on this, and we're not going to participate in the arbitration process, even though they are signatories to UN clause. And it was definitely not, this is probably not going to go our way, so we're going to question the legitimacy of it up front so that we can be consistent later when it inevitably doesn't go our way. That yeah. was not what was going through their heads. Yeah, right. They, China plays a long game, which we talk about in, in the first two episodes of our uh, Little Rocks Big Problem episodes, where we, we get into a little bit more historical context on perhaps why China is acting the way that it is in the South China Sea. So definitely go check out Little Rocks Big Deal. So what's China's claim going into this? Well, they say that back during, uh, gosh, I forget which dynasty, and I feel bad about that, but way back in Yan Day, I think the Ming, some fishermen found some rocks in the South China Sea, and they said, these are nice, and they went back to the emperor, and they said, these are some nice rocks, and uh, do you want them? And the emperor's like, I like stuff. So there's some paper document from something like the 1600s that said, yeah, there are like two rocks here that are ours. The modern Chinese government, after these started getting interesting in the 20th century, 
said, ah, yes, if you see this document from this emperor, it means that all of these rocks, by the way, they're not rocks, they're totally islands, and therefore totally legit, have been historically ours, and therefore are not rocks that happen to be within our economic zone, but instead are islands that are fundamentally part of China, and therefore our economic zone extends 200 nautical miles outside of them, which is basically all the South China Sea. That's ours, totally legit, and does anyone have a problem with it? Oh, wait, I don't care. Right, so the crux of China's argument is this historic claim that, well, they've been ours forever. I mean, look at this letter that we have. So therefore, they're ours now. And the international community is basically saying that's nonsense. You need to play by the rules that we've set up in these multilateral institutions. So Eric pointed out this distinction between rocks and islands, which we talk a little bit about or we talk in greater depth on our prior show. This might seem like a silly rhetorical distinction. You know, is it a rock? Is it an island? Is it a submerged feature? I mean, who cares, Perhaps right? even semantic and pedantic. Sometimes semantic and pedantic distinctions, however, matter, and that's certainly the case in law. Especially in a bureaucracy. Especially in a bureaucracy. So as it relates to UN clause and this ruling, islands are defined as capable of sustaining human habitation. And that definition brings with it certain rights to the country that controls that island. So the country controlling an island is entitled to 12 nautical miles of territorial water, so sovereignty around that that feature, that island, and a 200-mile economic exclusion zone. Now, if it's a load-tide elevation feature, which means that it's submerged during high tide and therefore not capable of sustaining human habitation— then there are no territorial claims associated with that feature. Yeah, and so if you if you think of an island, you might think of the islands of Hawaii, which is American territory as opposed to within America's nautical borders. So America's nautical borders actually extend off of the coast of Hawaii as opposed to Hawaii being contained. And that's the argument that China is making about these rocks, which are definitely rocks. They, they are definitely rocks, even though China would say, no, they're totally islands, guys. Come on. Now, China happens to have built a lot of stuff on there that have turned some of the rocks into potential islands. There's a lot of dredging, a lot of concrete pouring and such, and they've like built some airstrips and some bases and observation posts and all sorts of stuff. And so they do get to say, look at all these people that are kind of living here. Part of some of the statements made by the Permanent Court of Arbitration refer to these artificial islands that China has constructed and the really severe environmental damage that has been caused as a result of it. I mean, basically, China's dredging up all of these coral reefs to create artificial islands in the middle of the Pacific, from which they then say, oh, by the way, we can make claims, territorial claims based on these artificial islands. And the court basically said, no, 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 they have to be naturally capable of sustaining human habitation. Right. So if... You built an oil rig on a coral reef. You couldn't say this oil rig is definitely our, it's a real legit island. And we have now extended our territorial waters 12 nautical miles off this oil rig. Thanks, guys. That's not a thing people do. So what was the conclusion of the, of the arbitration proceedings, right? Well, the court basically ruled almost entirely in the Philippines' favor. It ruled that there are no features in the area, including the much-contested Spratly Island chain, 
that were capable of naturally supporting any form of human habitation and therefore were nothing bigger than rocks. Uh, but they're called islands. Right, they again. Call them spratly rocks. Ah, semantics. Indeed. Since they are rocks and not islands, they're, they're, uh, countries basically therefore cannot claim these extended exclusive economic areas, which is what China was doing in order to claim the bigger part of the sea according to this nine-dash line. The court also ruled that there are certain areas in the South China Sea that are within the exclusive economic zone of the Philippines. It was a very Manila favorable ruling. The problem, of course, is the permanent court of arbitration has no power of enforcement. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. And this is the problem with international laws and multilateral institutions. They're only laws to the extent that they are norms which states are willing to either voluntarily follow or are compelled to follow by some greater force. And as we're beginning to see, based on the reactions that have come out of China after this ruling, China might not be willing to follow the norms established by UN clause. And compelling them with force isn't exactly a realistic opportunity. Yeah, so we see a dual problem here, one of which is the collective action problem, and one of which is the tragedy of the commons. So the tragedy of the commons problem is that, hey, everyone loves having these multilateral institutions to constrain everyone else, but if I'm able to ignore them and be the one getting away with it, then I doubly benefit. The collective action problem is that everyone wants to enforce these multilateral institutions ruling because they have a collective benefit, but nobody wants to or sometimes can be the one to step up individually to take on the burden of enforcement. So it makes these things fragile. To say the least. Yes, I was thinking of a diplomatic word. Uh, good job. Thank you. So this can go a couple of different ways, right? People in the Philippines camp, you know, certainly the Philippines are praising this decision as a milestone. It's precedent setting. It's going to help all of these other Southeast Asia Pacific countries in establishing their claims. It's great. It's a precedent that the international community can now use, right? Well, if legal precedents are helpful at all in dealing with this issue, and they may not be. Right. So China, who is big, their their government is actually pretty big on saving face. So unlike Russia, they don't just tend to go, eh, like, I didn't do it. Oh, wait, no, I did it. Deal with it. Putin's foreign strategy, foreign policy strategy summed up in one syllable. Eh. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Eh. Deal with it. Ooh, I gotta get a, a gif of, I'm sure it's on the internet, of Putin looking at the camera slyly <laughs> and the sunglasses falling slowly onto his face deal with it <laughs> anyway uh so china is big on making a point about everything being legal it's a very legalistic country and in particular they want to use moral high ground and legal arguments to defend their own claims they don't believe in might makes right on principle and certainly not publicly um in part because of the two centuries of shame where other people use might makes right on them. So they say, look, we have all these ironclad legal arguments for why our borders are our borders and you're not allowed to violate them. And so they tend to be against any unilateral or most multilateral 
military excursions and stuff like that in order to preserve their borders. And so for them, this is actually also a pretty important precedent that they've made this claim and they've made the claim that their claim is ironclad. And for them, part of the problem is that if they start conceding here, then they're worried that the, you know, sort of there's a slippery slope and that the fabric of their many claims to different territorial areas like Xinjiang in the Northwest, Tibet, you know, kind of a controversial one, possibly Taiwan, but not so much, a few other islands near Japan, all this stuff that's important to their border security, as you can read in Taylor Fravel's book that I'll link lower down. But anyway, all the stuff that's very important to its border security in aggregate, they want to make sure that they don't move an inch on any of them. Uh, Xi Jinping said that, and he's the foreign minister, said that, The South China Sea has been part of the territory of China since ancient times and is not influenced by the verdict under any circumstances. The award is null and void and has non-binding force. China neither accepts it nor recognizes it. And in fact, he said, the tribunal itself is, quote, unjust and unlawful. Probably didn't help that it was made up of a bunch of white people. Mainly white people. Mainly white people, France, Poland, Netherlands, Germany, and Ghana, all of whom probably just have it out for China. Totally. And there's, I think there's an important distinction to make because China is not an extremely legalistic country because it just, in the last three decades, really upholds the, the rightness and goodness of international laws and norms, right? They have become incredibly effective since they've reemerged in the international arena in maneuvering within these multilateral institutions to get what they want. So it is it is more an ends justify the means sort of thing rather than the means being the end in itself, right? Yeah, although it's also the case that China, one of the two leading political philosophies of China for thousands of years was legalism, the other one being Confucianism. And this means to a large extent, legalism means to a large extent that, you know, law is sort of supreme uh, and everything should sort of be governed by law, where Confucianism is like, if, you know, if the if the sort of elder people like the, uh, sorry, like the emperor and the provincial governors and fathers and husbands... Um, all those, you know, in a patriarchal, hierarchical society, if those people are all virtuous, everyone around them will be virtuous and things will be great. Uh, so China has a legalist tradition for a very long time. It's very accustomed to maneuvering through massive bureaucracies. Uh, and so this is a game it knows how to play pretty well. Sure. And I don't, I don't want to get on too, too much of a tangent about this, but the, but the legalistic tradition in China was always in periods when China was supreme and and the most powerful force in its immediate realm right and that's kind of not exactly the case anymore right yeah so coming back to some of the reactions to this case uh xi jinping who's the president and chairman uh, of the communist party in china said that the south china sea had been a part of chinese territory since ancient times and it is not influenced by the verdict under any circumstances so china has already positioned itself as it was preparing to to basically say look this ruling we don't care so will they follow the judgment and if not how should the international community deal with a major country disregarding a judgment pass under a set of international rules that beijing had previously agreed to should there be a punishment of some sort if China ends up broaching, uh, breaching the judgment, and if so, what should that punishment be? 
I'm going to put my money on that they will, you know, that rather that they won't follow the judgment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Because there's not a whole lot that the international community can really do if China begins to flout these international norms, even if they've signed up to it, right? Because what effective force exists to push them back? I mean, you could talk about sanctions. Would those be effective? Probably not, at least not sanctions imposed by the United Nations, since both Russia and China have veto power on the Security Council. And Yeah, well, there just wouldn't be any sanctions from the UN. Yeah, China would veto, and Russia certainly doesn't have a lot of incentive to annoy China and create a hostile neighbor when it's already dealing with, you know, renewed heightened tensions with the U.S. So any sanctions that would actually get passed would have to be made by a coalition of countries basically led by the U.S. And any sanctions severe enough to impact China would also likely end up hurting the sanctioning countries as well. So would it be effective? Probably not. Right. That's one of the problems with sanctioning the second largest economy in the world. It's a little easier with Russia because their GDP is actually less than $2 trillion, little known fact. They kind of punch above their weight. But China is massive, and the United States economy doesn't just get trinkets from China, even though everyone wants to just tell you that. It gets a lot of very, very valuable stuff that is important to the chugging of the United States manufacturing and service sectors. And so cutting off trade with China, which is very export heavy, would mean that we wouldn't get that stuff and it'd be extremely disruptive. Not to mention that China holds a good amount of U.S. sovereign debt. And, you know, in theory, they could always just reverse threat and let those debt instruments mature without rolling over. Yeah, but I, I think that would also just tank their I mean, it's such a critical part of their currency manipulation for for being an export heavy economy, I think that would be sort of a, it'd be like a scorched earth policy, right? It would be pretty mutually assured destruction. Like, Hey, we'll just either let these mature or we'll sell them. And it would, they would take, we'd both go down together. Exactly. There's no form of negative economic statecraft that I can see being really effective in this situation that presents an actual realistic threat to China that would also not completely destroy the global economy, unfortunately. So what else is there? Military force? Well... Question mark? That's my official assessment. Probably not, right? There's, There's almost no degree of military confrontation that could force China's hand that 
the U.S. or the U.S. plus some coalition of countries would be willing or at least domestically politically able to put together. No Southeast Asia country can handle that degree of confrontation on its own. So the United States would need to be a binding ally to bring all of these Southeast Asian countries together in a collective show of force. So this is almost certainly not going to happen because, you know, we're dealing with everything in the Middle East and confrontations in the Ukraine and the, the, the U.S. domestic political landscape just really isn't going to support a major international conflict with a rising superpower over a couple of strips of land not even islands. They're just rocks in the Pacific, right? I'm, I've got two thoughts on that. One of them is I remember, I remember when I was studying the Sino-Indian War of the 1960s, the territorial claim that China had in India was a piece of territory that the Prime Minister of India said something like, quote, upon which not even a single blade of grass grows. So he said basically... Hey, we're not giving that over, but surely, you know, it's not a big deal. It's just not a big deal. Uh, everyone, I'm sure, can be called, oh, God, oh, God, they're here. And China came in and just steamrolled India and then left and then just occupied that tiny strip of land over which there was not a single blade of grass. Now, this was the 1960s. China was pretty crazy at the time, but it's a, I think it's an example of just how much China is willing to be quite disruptive and aggressive about enforcing its territorial claims. So to some extent, you also have to realize that when dealing with China over its territorial claims, it has a history of being willing to go to war and kill and die before backing down. And again, I think this is in part due to the centuries of shame. And the other thought is this. We talked about this at length in the earlier two-part series on the South China Sea, but and Xander talked about it. He said that China is like water seeping into cracks. It plays a very, very long game. It controls its media and therefore its population and therefore public opinion very well, such that they're always supportive of whatever China's doing. It has very slow turnover of its leadership. And it has such a long history and understanding of it that it's able to play this long game. And so even if there's a show of force, all China really has to do is wait it out. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I think we've talked about this before, but certainly in some military strategies, China acts a little bit differently than the U.S. does, right? In the U.S., we want to show a, we, a massive show of force in order to deter any sort of military action, whereas historically China, and these are grand sweeping statements, so take them with a grain of salt, but China might see that as being enveloped and actually really threatening. So something that China did in the Indochina War that you mentioned, Eric, as well as the Third Vietnamese War in 1979, was an offensive defense. They make a really massive, strong offensive to, in their words, teach the other country a lesson, and then they pull back once they've basically reached their limited objective, which worked for maintaining their control of territory in the Indochinese War in the 60s and the Third Vietnamese War. So there's this tension between military cultures and strategic cultures between the U.S. and China that, you know, could potentially be present an environment that's ripe for miscalculations. So any sort of military confrontation route is probably not a great idea to handle this crisis. But what does that leave? Not a whole lot. So what now? Well, one potential way to deal with this 
rising tension in the South China Sea in the long run, and it really is a long-term strategy, would be what some people refer to as positive economic statecraft, right? You, instead of punishing countries that misbehave, you reward through positive economic inducements countries that do behave. So we can bring a number of countries in the Pacific Rim that are not China closer to the U.S.'s economic orbit. Yeah, and it's worth noting that, for example, China's part of the World Trade Organization, and it did make concessions to become part of the World Trade Organization. I mean, China has come a very long way since the mayhem days, the 1960s, the 1970s. Them making a few moves in the South China Sea is something that to the Western world is sort of unacceptable, right? It's not the way that we do business. And we, I mean, it's important that these multilateral institutions that we've agreed to continue to operate because they're sort of the one step away from total interstate anarchy that the world suffered from until at least World War One. But it has come a long way from the 1970s. I think it's very unlikely that China is going to suddenly preemptively invade a border nation in order to teach them a lesson or, to, or in order to gain territory or something like that. So it's it's sort of like dealing with a, you know, they're an adolescent power to some extent, and you have to sort of, to some extent, recognize some of the gains you've made in their integration in the past. And so it, it leaves some potential for some future opportunities to for that positive economic statecraft to work. So can we do this? Can we construct some form of foreign policy that positively induces Southeast Asian countries to become closer to the United States. Well, we kind of already have, or at least we've negotiated the agreement. It, it has not gone into effect yet. And that is the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP. Now, I was against the TPP for a while for a lot of the reasons that you hear discussed in the U.S., you know, economic reasons, issue uh, issues of state sovereignty and intellectual property protection and these uh, tribunals that, that seem to kind of en encroach on the laws of individual countries. Now I'm for it. I actually put together a write-up that will link on the post for this episode on why I changed my mind in greater detail. I did a lot of research on previous trade agreements and the impacts on foreign direct investment and net exports and jobs and all that. And in, in my assessment, a lot of the narratives that exist today are not completely correct. So now I'm for the TPP. And a, a big reason that I'm for the TPP is it is one way to deal with China's increasing aggression that avoids conflict and negative economic sanctions, which, as we've discussed, would likely be ineffective or even damaging to the sanctioning countries or the global economy. So while the TPP usually gets discussed in terms of these, you know, uh, domestic economic terms, it gets very little mainstream attention from the perspective of an effective geopolitical strategy in the Pacific. And I think that within that framework, the TPP is one of the best options that we have in dealing with China. Bring the economies of the Pacific closer together and within the orbit of the U.S., and then also leave that carrot dangling in front of China so that they have an opportunity one day to be part of the gravy train as well, right? Right, and they were given that option, and they declined to join the TPP countries for yes, now. but someday, yeah, and, and someday matters might change such that, in particular, if the TPP is, a, is successful for a lot of these economies, 
China may start considering a long-term pivot on some of its foreign policy in order to get in on the good stuff. Exactly. And as we've seen, China is very effective at working within these multilateral institutions to their benefit. So it seems pretty likely, or at least possible, that they would join the TPP countries in the future if the TPP is ratified in the U.S. and all of that. Yeah, which I... Not... It looks unlikely right now. The sentiment in the United States is very anti-trade. You know, the sentiment in Britain is very anti-trade. So that was part of what drove Brexit. It seems to be kind of just an anti-trade era that we're going through right now. And this is something that ebbs and flows over history. And, you know, Donald Trump, very against the TPP. Uh, Sanders is very against the TPP and has influenced Clinton to move to the left a lot in order to win over stubborn Sanders voters. So it's something that I think, you know, love it or hate it. What's my prediction? My prediction is that I think the TPP is unlikely to make it through. And Mitch McConnell recently came out and said that he thought it was unlikely, given the power transition that's going on in the United States, that the TPP was going to get action from the outgoing Congress here. Totally. And I think this is a really interesting example of how foreign policy and domestic policy are really intricately linked. What's going on? I mean, it seems like an obvious statement, right? But there are different schools of foreign policy thought that look at the state as the agent, the actor, and consider the international arena to be the sole structure that influences its behavior. And I just think this this issue of trade and geopolitics with China is a great example to show that that's not the case, that domestic policy really does influence, at least to some degree, how a state acts in the international arena. You can just come out and say that it's classical realism. It's okay. I'm not going to be hurt. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's classical realism. It's also offensive realism. And we'll have to do a toolbox talk show on this. But there is a version of realism that I subscribe to, which uh, Gideon Rose lays out in some late 90s article, and that's neoclassical mm. realism. And that allows for domestic policies to act as an intervening variable between the structure of the international arena, the country, and that country's outcomes and, and behaviors. So I, I would call myself a realist at the end of the day. I would just call myself a neoclassical realist, and that leaves room for explanatory variables in domestic behavior to influence international behavior. You know what I would call you? Huh. Nerd. Totally. I'm a nerd. All right. So where are we, where are we now? TPP, it's an option. Probably not going to happen. So that's sort of where we stand right now. To some extent, this is an update, a little bit of a prediction of what's going to happen. And, of course, we don't have a strong recommendation about it, but we do want people to start thinking about long-term foreign policy strategy for the United States in a world that's not the unip that's that's leaving the era of unipolar total US hegemony that constituted the 1990s and even the 2000s. So we're entering a different world. This is a sign that we're entering a different world. And I think and I'm sure Xander thinks it's something that Americans, western I mean everyone that is a citizen in a country that votes needs to be considering pretty closely. Exactly. And I'd like to leave you with one perhaps more specific reconsider thought than, than we sometimes have, which is if you have an opinion on the TPP right now, think about 
how you formed your opinion about it and through which frameworks you formed that opinion. If you were to now think about the TPP in the perspective of a geopolitical strategy rather than a trade agreement, how does that lead you to reconsider or not reconsider your position? And that's what I got. So remember, always, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Xander signing off. So long, guys. This is Eric. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.